So one of the unique things about me is uh, when I was growing up, I was a Boy Scout. And, uh, you know, learned how to do all the Boy Scout stuff. We learned how to tie the tots, uh, tie the knots, not the tots. That would be weird. We learned how to tie knots, and we, we, we learned how to shoot BB guns, and we learned how to do all these different things. And one year, one of our scout leaders says, hey, he asked the boys, he said, what do you guys want to do? And we kind of thought, hey, this is kind of fun. You know, what activity would you like to do? What, what adventure would you like to have? And one of my friends says, kind of flippantly, hey, let's go climb a mountain. And this leader who was kind of a weird guy, he, was, he had a bald head and he was pretty short and he pretty stocky guy. He says, okay. He says, if you follow me, we'll climb a mountain. And we're like, really? Really? And so he, he takes us on this little bit of a training thing. And first thing he does is he takes us out rock climbing. And he puts us in these harnesses and he ties ropes to us. And he wants to begin to help us to understand what it means to follow him. And so he ties us up and he, he takes us up the, uh, up the face of the rock. And we climb up to the top and we rappel down. And we get used to heights and we get used to some of these things. And we're like, okay, okay. And then the next thing he does is he takes us in the middle of winter to this frozen 35-foot waterfall. And he says, I want you guys to climb up the waterfall. And we're like, what? And he gives us these things called crampons. And he puts them onto our boots. These are like claws, you know? Like you kids would be like, sweet, I can have claws. And he puts these, 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 these crampons on our, on our boots. And he gives us these, these ice axes. And, and he says, here's what you do. You, you, cl- you cling it in and then you kick it in and you just climb up this frozen waterfall. And we're like, who does this, right? You know, it gets us used to being on the ice. It gets us used to being around the ice. And so finally he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow me all the way down to Mount Hood in northwestern Oregon. And so we get to Mount Hood and he says, if you follow me up to the top, you will make it to the summit. And so we start, we start the initial climb, and, and one of the guys sprains his ankle and can't go on any further. So three members of our climbing party, in the very beginning, has, has to cut back and say, well, I'm done. I'm going back down. I can't go on. And, and we're looking around saying, man, this is, like, this is like a big deal, right? And he says, follow me. And so we follow him up to what we call base camp. This was a place where we were going to spend the night on the mountain, sleeping in the snow. Who does that, right? But he said, follow me. So we followed him to base camp. And at base camp, I don't know how far up we were on the mountain, but, but there was a number of folks in our climbing party who had a hard time adjusting to the altitude. You know, when you get up to a certain altitude, the, the oxygen becomes a little less, the, the air becomes more thin, and their body had a hard time acclimating to the lack of oxygen. And so, and so there's about half of our climbing party that said, you know, we're just going to stay here. We're not going to keep going all the way up to the summit. And we're sitting here and being like, wow, this is kind of like, man. And so our leader wakes us up about 2.30 in the morning. And he says, hey, if you want to get to the top, follow me. So we follow him up the mountain. And there's falling rocks around us. There are, there are walls of ice we've got to climb. There are crevasses that we have to work our way around. But we followed him And made it to the top of an 11,240 foot mountain. And you could see for hundreds and hundreds of miles. It was a clear day. You could see all the way down to the the Three Sisters Mountains in southern Oregon. You could see all the way up into British Columbia. You could see forever on top of this mountain. And it was a phenomenal experience. One of those things where I learned what does it mean to really follow somebody. 
So today, we're in week two of our sermon series that we've titled Jesus the King, a study of the gospel of, of Mark. Last week, we saw Mark introduced us to a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And we said that John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus. He was the fullback to what was going to come to pave the way for the Messiah. Mark as well introduced us to Jesus. And we saw Jesus getting baptized by Mark. We saw Jesus in his first sermon. It was a simple 18 words. His first sermon was summarized as this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But do you remember how we left off last week? Remember, Jesus called the first of his four disciples. He called Simon and Simon's brother, Andrew. He called James and James's brother, John. He says, here's what I want you to do. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, I want you to leave your career as fishermen. I want you to leave your family up behind. And I want you to follow me. Not that a career and family are necessarily bad things. But Jesus was saying, if you're going to follow me, I've got to be your first priority. I can't be the second. I can't be the third. I am going to be the first priority in your life if you are going to follow me. Now, I tend to be a trusting person. I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. Some of you in here are not quite like me. You tend to be a little bit more cautious. You want to give people the opportunity to prove themselves before you will fully engage with them and before you will fully trust them. So if you put yourself in these disciples' shoes, can you imagine the question that they're wondering? Man, this Jesus said to follow him. Can I trust him? Is he worthy of surrendering my life to? Is he worthy of following I mean, is there any doubt that Jesus really is who he says he is? He says he's the Messiah. He says that he is the one that we've been waiting for ever since sin entered into the world all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And here he is saying, follow me. Can we really trust him? Can we really surrender our lives to him? Will he really lead us up to the top of that mountain? And for you and I, Jesus' word it's the same. He says, follow me. He says, surrender your life to me. Everything else in your life should be second place. I'm number one. Serving me should shape your career. Serving me should shape your family. Serving me should shape your entire life. But how do we know? How do we know that Jesus is, is worthy of our life? How do we know that we can trust Jesus, that he's not going to lead us to some weird place, that he's really going to lead us up to the top of the mountain? I mean, yeah, we get, we get the whole idea that we've got to make things right with God. I mean, we get the idea that we've got to come to church. We've got to try to appease God's anger because of our sin. Yeah, we, we get that. But this whole idea of surrendering our entire life, that sounds so radical. That requires so much of us. And you've just got to wonder, how do we know that Jesus is really the Messiah? How do we know that we can trust him with our entire lives? 
with our marriage, with our, with our career, with our finances, with our doubts. How do we know that we can just surrender that to the foot of Jesus and say, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you lead me. What's fascinating is as we read the rest of this chapter, something that I've titled Kingdom Demonstrations. Because what Jesus is going to do is throughout the rest of this chapter of chapter 1, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today. I forgot to say that earlier. What, what happens is in the rest of chapter 1, Jesus give these, gives these kingdom demonstrations. These things that prove that Jesus is worthy of our surrender. Jesus is worthy of being followed. He gives these kingdom demonstrations that backs up his claim that the kingdom of God is at hand because I am here. He backs up the claim that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He backs up the claim that he is worthy of our surrender. He is worthy of us following. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see kingdom demonstrations that should give us a trust that we can follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we're so excited for the opportunity to open up your word God, we're excited that this isn't just opinion hour. This isn't just uh, listening to the pastor give us his opinion. But God, this is your word that's being taught today. God, I pray that you would give us an understanding and an appreciation for what it is that you are trying to communicate to every one of us today. Because God, we aren't coming here just to have fun. We're coming here to meet with you and for you to, to, to speak to our, heart, to our hearts. God, we pray for your presence with us today. We pray for your spirit that you would be clear. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to see the first of two kingdom demonstrations, starting in verse 21. Mark writes and says, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished. At his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Capernaum was a small town in the northwest shore of Lake Galilee. It was a, a town primarily full of, of fishermen and merchants and craftsmen and, and laborers and their families. And there's no doubt that they would have been curious about this Jesus. They would have known that Jesus is causing this stir around the countryside, around Capernaum. And so they would have been curious as to exactly who this Jesus was. So they would have gone to the synagogue that day, as they would have done every Sunday, to participate in the blessings, to participate in the prayers, to hear God's word being read. All the while, every one of us, every one of them, were anxiously awaiting this Jesus and the sermon that this Jesus would give. Verse 22 says that Jesus did not disappoint. It says that the people were astonished at his teaching. This word astonished means they were, they were amazed. They were, they were thunderstruck. They were surprised. And why is that? Why were they surprised? Because verse 22 says he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. See, this is the first kingdom demonstration that Jesus was teaching as one with authority. This is the first time that Mark uses the word authority in his gospel. This word authority doesn't mean that Jesus spoke and was just loud. It doesn't mean that he was assertive. It doesn't mean that he was confident. It doesn't mean that he was any of these things. This word 
authority, when it's translated out of the original language, means literally out of the original stuff. This word authority is, comes from the same root word that we get the word author. So what Mark is trying to say is that Jesus taught about life out of a personal authority as an author, as opposed to the scribes and the Pharisees who, who, who taught with a borrowed authority. Now, the apostle John in his gospel, the book of John, he said, he described in John chapter one, he said, said Jesus was the word. Jesus is the word. And here in Capernaum, for the first time, those townsfolks, those listeners who are here listening to Jesus, they would sense that Jesus was explaining the story of their lives, not as an observer, but as the author, as the creator of life himself. Let me explain this difference between an author and a borrowed authority. You and I, we could get on an airplane and we could fly to Paris, France. And we could go to the Louvre Museum in Paris. And we could see that famous painting, the Mona Lisa, right? And while we're in Paris, while we're looking at this, this painting, we could have one of the museum curators come. And they could teach us all that they've learned about the Mona Lisa. This is how the Mona Lisa was painted. This is who the Mona Lisa is a, a picture of. But you see, this curator would be teaching us from a borrowed authority. Everything that they're teaching us is things that they have learned, things that they have observed, things that they have read in books that talk about the Mona Lisa. But imagine, imagine if we sat down for coffee with the painter himself, Leonardo da Vinci. What if we sat down and he sat and said, let me tell you all about this picture. Let me tell you how it was done. I mean, if, if we sat down with Leonardo da Vinci, it'd be a little different than just having a curator tell us what they have learned about it. I mean, quite honestly, if I'm sitting there with Leonardo da Vinci, I'm going to be like, dude, here's how you take a selfie and you can get yourself in that picture, right? I mean, teach him some of the things that we have learned. But do you see the difference here? When Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority out of the origins of life. He spoke not out of a borrowed or learned authority. He is the authority. He is the word. Jesus' style when he taught. Think back to the gospel of Mark, the, uh, the gospel of Matthew. Jesus, his style when he taught was, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. See, in Capernaum, there's no talk of Jesus just being a good teacher. That's one of the conclusions that our society has attributed to Jesus. Well, he's just a good teacher, but he's not necessarily an authority in my life. But there's no talk like that in Capernaum. The conclusion to all those listening to Jesus that day was that he taught them as one who had authority. And here this becomes a demonstration to his disciples that Jesus is worthy of being followed because he speaks with that authority as the author and as the creator of life himself. So let me ask you this. If Jesus is the author, if Jesus' word is the authority, which areas of your life are you struggling to submit to that authority? Which areas of your life are you struggling to submit to the authority of, of, of God's word through Jesus?
What are you clinging on to? Saying, saying, no, no, I won't let you have influence on this part of my life. I'm going to cling on to it and hold on to it. And I'm going to refuse to let that sit under the authority of Jesus. God's word says this. God's word says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. So who are you holding a grudge against? Who do you have anger inside of you towards? God's word tells men that when you look at a woman with lustful thoughts, it says if you've already committed adultery in her heart. Men, which women are you struggling having those inappropriate thoughts about? Men, what's in the browser history on your phones and on your computers? Jesus, his word, God's word says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Yet how many of us struggle with keeping our promises? How many of us struggle with keeping our word? Jesus says, follow me. I am to be your first priority. Yet how many of us struggle in submitting our family, submitting our career, submitting our wealth, submitting our our addictions to God? So that worshiping and and serving God becomes our first priority. Not our second, not our third. But he comes first in our lives. How many of us are struggling with something else in that order, in that place? Here's the deal. If you're not there, if you're struggling with these authority issues, this here, Restoration Church, is a safe place for you to be honest with where you are. You, you don't have to fake it. I mean, are you struggling with doubt? Just say it. Just say it. Are you struggling with addiction, with habitual sin? Just say it. We're not afraid of your brokenness. Because the truth is, all of us, every one of us in here are broken people. The church, this is what the church is. It's, it's a place of broken people who've been saved by Jesus. This is a place uh, where, where people are all on a varying level learning and understanding and what it, what it means to submit to God's authority in our lives. Every one of us are learning and understanding what it means to do this. So let's just be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest with each other. Because if we can do that, if we can drop this facade, and if we can be honest with our areas that we're struggling to submit to the authority of God, if we can do that, then we can journey together towards healing, towards health, towards growth, the way that God designed it in community, together. So Jesus is worthy to follow because of the authority of his word. But the second kingdom demonstration that, that, that Jesus is going to give in Mark chapter 1 is he's going to demonstrate his power and his authority over this world. This is shown through miracles and the healings that we're going to see throughout the rest of this entire chapter. There are four miraculous healings, four things that Jesus does that demonstrates his power over this earth, over this world. We're going to look at each of those really quickly. The first one in verse 23. It says, immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out and said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
You see the light, the authority of Jesus. It's too much for this evil of this demonized life. Kind of like, kind of like when you go into a cabin and you flip the light on and all the nasty little critters run off and hide. That's kind of what happens here with this man, with this evil spirit. When the light of Jesus, the authority of Jesus becomes exposed, he begins to convulge and tremble in fear of the light of Jesus. Because this evil spirit wants nothing to do with Jesus. And at best, he wants Jesus to go away. This man we see is completely under the control of evil. His personality is so damaged by this evil spirit that even the evil spirit has control over his tongue and is speaking through this man. There's an interesting point to be made about this. I mean, Jesus, one of the things we celebrate is his incarnation. This is why we celebrate Christmas, right? The fact that Jesus became a man, that God became a man through Jesus and dwelt with us. That's what the incarnation means, that Jesus became one of us. Satan, he isn't incarnate. Satan can't become one of us. Yet, Satan wants to be like Jesus, doesn't he? And so what he does is he fakes incarnation through evil spirits. See this connection? He fakes incarnation through evil spirits. And so this man was lost. He was an empty kennel for evil spirits of Satan. And you can almost feel the tension in that room. Jesus has preached his sermon and this evil spirit comes and says, what have you to do with us? And you feel the tension of what's going to come next. Verse 25 says, Jesus rebuked the spirit, saying, be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. You know what this tells me? I mean, Jesus demonstrates his power over this evil spirit. But you know what this tells me? That there is hope for even the worst of us. You think about the hardest, you think about the toughest, you think about the meanest and vilest person that you know. Somebody that to everybody else, it would seem this person is impenetrable. They are unredeemable. It is impossible for their life to change. The story reminds me that nothing, nothing is too hard for God. God, Jesus, can shed light on even the hardest of hearts. And Jesus can break through on even the most difficult and tough circumstances. No one is too far gone from the light of Christ. Verse 29, you see the second example of Jesus' power over this physical world. It says in verse 29, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. See, I love, I love this picture. I love this picture that Jesus reaches out his hand, and he picks her up, lifts her up. I mean, Jesus could have healed her any way he, he could have wanted. I mean, he could have done it any sort of way. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus performs these miracles in any number of different ways. Sometimes all Jesus does is speaks and the miracle happens. Sometimes 
though it becomes a little bit more complicated. For example, Jesus at one point spits into the, mud, into the dirt and makes clay. And he picks up the clay and rubs it in a man's eyes and says, now you go dip in the, in the pool and then you'll be healed. I mean, Jesus could have healed this woman any way possible. But Jesus is always intentional in the way he goes about performing his miracles. There is a meaning behind his miracles. And here, Jesus reaching down and lifting up Simon's mother-in-law shows that Jesus is motivated by love. Jesus has this overwhelming love for, for people and for this woman. And ultimately, we see this again and again in this passage. We see it again in the healing of the man with leprosy. Jesus is moved by love, which leads him to respond. And so Jesus reaching out with this woman was a sign of his love. After healing Simon's mother-in-law, which, man, if you've got a mother-in-law, you probably should try and do something for her. That's a good thing to do. Verse 32 says, That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door and healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Talk about an amazing evening. The whole town comes to Jesus. And, and, and there are demons who fled the presence of Jesus. There are cripples who are tossing their wheelchairs to the sidewalk. There are, 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 are people who can't walk, who are taking their crutches and breaking them in half and throwing them into the fire. There are people who ha, were laying comatose, who are now lucid and talking. Can you even begin to imagine that kind of uh, excitement and the joy that would have been for all the people that were looking on to what happened that night. It says the whole town came to Jesus and Jesus was healing and casting out demons. And then drop down to verse 40. This is the last kingdom demonstration of Jesus' power over this world. It says, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. See, it's hard sometimes for us to imagine the, the isolation of a leper's life, the humiliation a leper would have experienced. They were ostracized from their society because everybody thought that that disease was contagious. And if you were around a person with leprosy, that you would get that leprosy. So we can hardly imagine the isolation of their life. This leper would have had a disheveled appearance and he would have had to go around yelling, unclean, unclean, whenever he came near the general population of people. I mean, think about, think about how you'd feel every time you had to walk into the grocery store and yell, unclean, unclean, and people avoided you like you were a cold to be caught. Think about the inescapable feelings of embarrassment of worthlessness, of, of despair. Verse 41 says, Jesus was moved with pity, and he stretched out his hand, and he touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. See, it says Jesus was moved with pity. Jesus' response was not just feeling sorry for this man, his response was beyond just feeling sorry. It was beyond sympathy. It was beyond empathy. It says Jesus was filled with compassion. 
means he feels the pain and the hurt of leprosy within himself and is deeply moved, so much moved to the point that he does something about it. I mean, this is something, this is something I want you to take heart of. This is something I want you to hold on tightly. Jesus has compassion for your struggle. Not just sympathy. He doesn't just feel sorry for you. But compassion so much so that he feels it within himself. Jesus does more than just understand your burden. He feels the full weight of the pain and the hurt and the burden that you carry. He feels that weight alongside you. So take heart. Take heart that there is someone who compassionately feels and carries that burden alongside you. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus could have healed this man any number of ways. He could have done any sort, any sort of thing. But it says that he reached out and he touched the man. He didn't need to touch this man, but he chose to. He delighted. I mean, if you think about the man full of leprosy, it would be reasonable, it would be reasonable for us to assume that it had been years upon years that he last felt the touch of a clean, healthy hand. I mean, if he had a wife, if he had a kids, he would have longed for their embrace, but they wouldn't have come near. They wouldn't have hugged him. They wouldn't have kissed him. They wouldn't have touched him. Not even once. And Jesus gives this man exactly what he needed. So here Jesus demonstrates that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he shows his power and his authority over this earth to heal time and time and time again. Let this sink into your life. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever you have going on, if Jesus can heal the leper, can't he take control of the mess of your life? If Jesus can cast out demons, can't he fix the wrongs in your life? If Jesus can heal hundreds of people with a variety of ailments that night, can't he interrupt into what's happening in your life and take care of your issue? Jesus has the power and the authority over the things of this world. Take heart that God, that Jesus can intervene into the deepest hurts and burdens and concerns in your life. But let's talk about this for a second, though. Because sometimes, sometimes we get hung up on all of these healings. I mean, I mean, if we were going to be honest, we would say that most of these people that we see coming to Jesus, they're coming to Jesus because they want something from him. They're not coming to Jesus because they want to learn uh, who he is. They don't want to learn why he's here. They're coming to Jesus because they want to take something from him. They want what he has to offer. They want healing. They don't want to know about his spiritual implications. I mean, can't necessarily blame them, right? Anybody who has experienced ongoing disability, they would understand and they would sympathize with these people coming to Jesus and wanting healing. But at the same time, this tragically foreshadows millions of people from across the centuries who only want Jesus for what they would receive from him. They only want Jesus because he can do something for them. 
Jesus addressed people with this kind of motive after he fed the 5,000, saying in John chapter 6, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's saying, you don't want me, you want my stuff. You don't want a relationship with me, you want my stuff. You want what I can do. You don't really want me. To those people in Capernaum, they had little concern about the spiritual implications of Jesus' miracles. They were much more concerned just about the material and about the temporal. It's natural for us at some point to want this magic Jesus. Like Jesus is like our genie in a bottle, and if we just rub it the right way, we'll get whatever we want. Have it your way. Burger King, whatever that commercial is. We'd love for Jesus to heal us whenever we had a fever. We'd love for Jesus to make us wealthy. We'd love for Jesus to give us prestige. But is that why Jesus came? Did Jesus come to show his power and to heal everybody? Mark gives us the answer. I skipped over it before on purpose. Look at what Mark says in verse 35. It says, And Jesus, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. After the night where all the townsfolks come to Jesus for healing, he wakes up early and he goes off to pray. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why? Why did Jesus have to go and pray? I mean, if he's the son of God, if he is the Messiah, why, if he had no sin, why did Jesus have to go and why did he have to pray? See, even though Jesus was God, he did not live his life as God apart from the Father. Rather, Jesus lived his life as a man dependent upon God. Consider the words that Jesus himself said in John 5. He said, the son can do nothing of his own accord. In John 14, Jesus said, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the father who dwells in me does his works. See, Jesus was empowered through prayer with the father. He depended upon God the Father for his power. The same scene occurs time and again throughout the Gospels. Jesus breaks away from the crowds so he can spend time alone in prayer with God. See, from a human perspective, if we were to understand prayer on a human perspective, this, this great old preacher theologian by the name of Stanley Jones, he described prayer as, as time exposure to God. Think about, think about your old photography. Think about, think about this. The analogy is that life is like a photographic plate. And when it is exposed to God, you progressively take on the image of God, depending on the length of exposure. And so as Jesus is exposing himself to God, he begins to take on more of the attributes played out in him. So Jesus is praying, and verse 36 says, Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. I mean, well, duh. I mean, I mean, if you're the disciples, you're like, Jesus, last night was awesome. I mean, there were hundreds of people coming. You know, this is awesome. Let's capitalize on it. Let's take advantage of the momentum. Come on, Jesus. Let's go heal more people. Let's give the people what they want. But Jesus was not interested. Look at his response in verse 38. It says, he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. 
He went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. He says, let's go on to the next town that I may preach the gospel of repentance and belief. For this is why I came out. That's one of those verses that should be underlined in your Bible. Jesus says, for this is why I came out. The healing heart of Jesus is not as interested in physical healing as he is interested in spiritual healing. He refused to let the disciples take him back into Capernaum to be known as the healer because he didn't come to be the healer. He came to be the savior. Jesus says, I came not to be the healer. I came to be the savior. He went back to the countryside preaching about repentance and belief in the gospel. I mean, yes, Jesus did heal people. Jesus still heals people. Jesus still does this to this day. We believe that Jesus still has the power over this world and the authority over this world. James 5 gives us instructions on how, to this practi- how this plays out and how it's practiced. It says that when the sick calls on the elders of the church, that the elders of the church, they anoint him or her with oil and they pray in faith to God for healing. Jesus still has the power and the authority over this earth. He still heals. He still intervenes in our lives. And he is still motivated by his great love for us. But listen, these physical healings are temporal at best. What Jesus was emphasizing was that the healing of the spirit of men through salvation was the reason he came. That he wanted people to be healed of their souls, that they would receive salvation. And once they received the healing of salvation, that they would receive healing from bitterness and hatred and lust and anger and gossip and the like of these things. Jesus says, don't mix. Don't, don't, don't miss why I came. I didn't come so everybody could feel better about themselves. I came so they would hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would come into a saving relationship with me. So let's think back to these disciples. Jesus had told them, come and follow me. The same question. They would have asked the same question that I asked my scout leader that day. Can I trust you to take me up this mountain? Can I trust to follow you? Can I surrender myself to you? Can I trust my life in your hands. Absolutely. Jesus, through these kingdom demonstrations, he, he, he gives us that trust. He gives us that confidence. Jesus is empowered by prayer and moved by love. He teaches as one, not with a borrowed authority, but as the author himself. I mean, have, you, have you ever noticed how God's word, how God's word can just penetrate the, the deepest part of our hearts, the marrow of our bones, how we can open up God's word and all of a sudden it seems like one of those verses was written directly to us and it leaps off the page. You're like, wow, this was written directly to me. This is God's word speaking to me right here and right now. That's because of the authority of that word. That's because we have that authority right here in the Bible. This is it. And empowered through prayer and moved by love, Jesus Jesus demonstrates his power through the authority he has over the things of this world. Whether it be sickness, whether it be leprosy, whether it be demons, whether it be joblessness, whether it be struggling kids, whether it be an addiction or mental health or a marriage that's failing, Jesus has the power to intervene in the affairs of our life, to heal and to make things right. 
So as we wrap this up, I want to point out something fascinating about the authority of Jesus. Among Jesus' final words, Jesus said this in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, we are the church. We are the body of Christ, which by definition is all of those who have placed their faith and trust and received salvation found through the gospel of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's given us a job to do in those last words. He says our job is to make disciples of all nations, to know Christ and to make Christ known throughout our city and throughout the world. And Jesus, who has all authority, has promised that he will be with us always through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus, Jesus is with us. His authority rests with the church. The authority of Jesus, it rests right here. It rests with us. We have the keys to the kingdom. So like Jesus, we are to love our city. We are to love the broken, the disheveled, the outcasts. We are to love our city the way that Jesus loves us. We are to have compassion on the hurting, not just feeling sorry for them, but but having a compassion that moves us to get involved in the lives of those people that are hurting, that are outcasts around us. Sometimes this can be messy. And what we often want to do is when we see that person who is hurting, when we see that person who's an outcast, when we see that person who is different than us, we want to just ignore them and pretend they don't exist. Because isn't that easier? I mean, how do we know what to say? How do we know what to do? I mean, isn't it easier for us just to go and walk on the other side of the street when we see that homeless person instead of involving ourselves in their life? Isn't it easier for us just to take $5 and hang it out the window and say, here you go, instead of actually getting to the root of who that person is and their struggle? See, there's lonely and there's forgotten and there's hurting people all around us. There's people who are hurting in here today. People who are at the end of their rope that just need what Jesus had to offer. A loving and a helping hand. They need an embrace that reminds them, you're not alone. You're not alone. See, my prayer is that we would be a church that would have this kind of heart. That each of us would pray and say, God, give me a heart that doesn't look past the hurting and the outcasts like we normally do. But God, give us a heart full of compassion that moves us, that moves us to be involved in people's lives, even when it's messy, even when it's difficult, even when it's hurting. And like Jesus, we have the authoritative word of God. We have this book. It has all the answers. It is the authority in itself. We don't have to have the most compelling arguments. We don't have to know all the answers to all the questions. We have the word of God. This is the authority. This is the word. Let's stand on the word of God and not shrink back. Jesus is worthy 
of us following him because of these kingdom demonstrations. And we, as the church, are then continuing Jesus' ministry right here in the Yakima Valley and throughout the entire world by teaching authoritatively the word of God and by loving people with compassion as Jesus loved them. I encourage you this morning to respond to God's word through worship. Encourage you to respond and, and just praise God for the power and the authority of his word and the power and the authority that he has over this world. The worship team will come up and just submit it. And I encourage you, just get lost in the worship, praising God for who he is and for what he has done. I'm going to ask you this morning to respond to me with worship through prayer. If you would like myself or another one of our counselors to pray for you, I'd encourage you during the next couple of songs, don't be weird about it. Just come forward. Say, Pastor, I'm struggling. Pastor, I'm hurting. At the end of my rope, would you, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? It'd be my honor. Or if you'd like to just sit in your own seat and just spend some time in prayer with God, I'd encourage you, respond to God's word. Make things right with him. Wrestle with him. It's okay to do that. And finally, I'm going to invite you this morning to respond to God's word through communion. Communion was instituted by Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Jesus took the bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. And then Jesus took the cup and he passed it around. And he said, this is my blood that has been shed for you. The apostle Paul gives us instructions on communion. And he describes communion as an act of worship. For Christians, as a way for us to remember Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for us. If you are not a Christian, why not come forward today and talk to one of our counselors about what has preventing you from surrendering your life to Jesus? Why not today decide, I'm going to be a Christian. Surrender your life to him. Say, Jesus, all right, I'll follow you. And if you are a Christian, I'd encourage you to spend a few minutes between you and God. Examine your heart for sin. Repent. Confess. Make sure things are right between you and the Lord. And then we invite you to come forward and partake of the elements. Here at Restoration Church, we don't take them as a group. So take your time. And when you're ready to partake of communion, just come on forward. Would you pray with me? God, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here today. We're thankful for the opportunity to hear your word. And God, I pray that as we look through your word, as we look at this gospel of Mark, that God, you would speak loudly and clearly. That we would see that you are worthy of our surrender, that you are worthy of us following. That Jesus, you will take us up the mountain. That Jesus, you will take us into heaven. God, I pray that we will see that you are worthy of all of these things that you have asked of us. And God, I pray that we would have that faith that we can fully surrender ourselves to you, every part of our being, and that Jesus, you will take care of us. God, I pray for those in here who are struggling with these authority issues because Jesus, truthfully, we all are. God, I pray that you would expose those areas that we have not yet surrendered to you, that we are holding on to, that we would come to you today and say, Jesus, I'm sorry I've been holding on to this, but Jesus, this is yours today. God, I pray that you would bring that sin to light and that we would have the faith and the boldness to surrender that to you. 
Jesus, I pray that we would understand that as your church, as your body, that you've sent us on mission to continue the ministry that you started. That we would love people the way that you have loved them. And that we would share your word with them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would experience spiritual healing. That they would experience salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for meeting us here today. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.